So I remember being a kid, and um, as many of us, some of my memories are really crystal clear, and others are kind of fuzzy around the edges. And I wanted to share with you one of my one of those memories. It's a little bit fuzzy, but still kind of funny. Um, we lived in Italy at the time. I was born in Naples, and we lived in northern Italy until I was six years old. And then we moved to Guinea, West Africa. But I think it was either when I was five or when I was six, because we were still in Italy. And I remember traveling with my family. And I think we were either, I'm pretty sure we're going to Switzerland, but maybe we're in France. And I remember we were driving and we were stopping at different sites and doing sightseeing. And I remember as a kid driving up to this castle. I was like, whoa, it's a castle. And we walked and walked and walked and walked around the castle. And slowly, for my five- or six-year-old self, the excitement really started to wear off. And I was really tired of being at this castle. And and again, the memory's a little fuzzy, but I remember it was almost time to leave. And I asked my mom where the restroom was, so she sent me that way. And I remember walking into this restroom, and it was a large room. I remember it being cold, and there were stone walls. And then the next thing I remember are adults standing around me laughing and chuckling. And my mom putting her hand on my shoulders. And so after having some conversation with me, like, what is that all about? Evidently, I was so tired. I was so done with this castle that I had walked into the restroom and put my hands on the sink and fallen asleep standing at the sink. And, and pretty soon my parents were like, Where, where'd she go? So they came looking. There was a lot me. of ways that story could have ended. And I was so curious. I was, I've never heard this story. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> to surprise you even. But, but you know, my little five, six-year-old self had, had expended all the energy I had to expend that day. I had reached my limit and I just hit a wall right there standing in front of the sink. And I don't remember, uh, I vaguely remember my mom putting her hands on me and kind of leading me away. I don't remember where I slept that night. I don't remember anything else, but I know that my parents were there and my parents took care of me. I wonder if you can think of a time when you've reached your limit. When you're like, oh my goodness, I can't do this anymore. Like today, or are we trying to think back? Yeah. <laughs> Five minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you can think of a yeah, time when you hit that. hit that wall, that limit. Today, Elijah hits the wall. Um, so we're, we're in a series, and we'll go back before we go forward and kind of recap where we've been. Um, Elijah is a prophet of God. He goes to King Ahab, an incredibly wicked king, and he says to the king, there's going to be a drought in the land for a number of years. Uh, he then has to flee and hide for his life. For the next three years, he's hiding away, uh, being taken care of by a widow in another country, um, until eventually God came to, to Elijah and said, I want you to go back to Ahab. And I want you to tell him, um, uh, I want you to call him out and the nation out. Uh, they've been worshiping Baal. Uh, he ends up meeting Ahab and at, the, at Mount um, Carmel. 
they have this standoff. Uh, Elijah, one man, the one prophet of God, as far as he knows, the only prophet left. We'll find out today that God has been reserving for himself others. Um, but one man, Elijah, with the true God, stands against the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They have this, this standoff uh, in, in which they'll build an altar and they'll sacrifice an animal on it, but they won't light the altar. Instead, they will call upon their gods and the true God will answer with fire and burn up that sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal, all day long, they shout and they holler and they cut themselves and they cry out to their God, but Baal does not answer. Elijah invites the people of Israel, come make this altar with me. And they do. And he says, go ahead and just douse it in water. And they do three times. And then Elijah prays to God, God, make yourself known. And God sends down fire and it consumes the altar and the sacrifice and all of the water. Elijah then has all the prophets of Baal seized and put to death. And then he turns to Ahab, King Ahab. And he says, I think it's time for you to head on home. I think there's rain on the horizon. Elijah then runs, I believe it's about 17 miles, um, back to the capital from there. And, uh, and today we pick up after Elijah has experienced the highest of highs, right? Uh, the, 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 the defeat of the 450 prophets of Baal, having been uh, revealed as a true prophet of God before the entire nation, and yet he's about to crash. So we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Having defeated the prophets of Baal, uh, Jezebel, who worships Baal and had kind of brought this practice to the nation, uh, was a part of inaugurating it there, She determines that Elijah ought to end up like all of those dead prophets. There's a death threat out against him. So again, uh, not for the first time in his story in life, Elijah is fleeing for his life. He is running to try to find refuge and to save his life. And it's so interesting to look at the big picture, like you were saying. Elijah's just had this mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel. And there was this victory, this this moment of victory, um, that God, God's victory over the prophets of Baal and the worship of Baal. And yet now in this moment, just a little bit later, Elijah doesn't feel victorious. He feels completely defeated. Jezebel's threat just tanked him, brought him all the way down. And and he prays to God. He cries out to God and he said, I've had enough. Just I'm done. Take my life now. I can't do it anymore. And I wonder if how many of us, I would guess a lot of us have had maybe not this, this drastic of a shift, but a shift in perspective that happens super quickly. 
where the day's going well, we see what God is doing, or, you know, good things are happening, and there's so much to celebrate, and then one thing happens, one challenge or one negative thing happens, and all of a sudden we feel completely defeated. It's almost like we get tunnel vision, and like that's all we can see, that one thing. And I wonder if that's what's happening here to Elijah, and it just feels all-consuming. He's gone from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, sitting under this bush, just wishing he would die. Uh, The story continues, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. I love God's immediate response here. I mean, can you smell the bread? I can smell the bread baking in my, in my house when I, when I read this passage. And God's immediate response when Elijah hits this wall and just crashes is to send an angel to care for Elijah's physical body. And I think that is so significant with the bread and the water. It speaks volumes to the importance of our bodies. It's fairly common, I think, in, in churches for Christians to think that, um, to think negatively of our bodies, that we are, there's this misconception that we are this, these spiritual beings that are trapped in our physical bodies, that our spirit matters, but our bodies don't matter. And yet that's not how God created us. God created us embodied beings that our soul and our emotions and our intellect all live in this body. All those parts of us are intertwined to make one whole. And in this story with Elijah, you really see, see that, that comes to light, that Elijah has been on high alert. Imagine the, the anticipation, the stress, the danger, the fear, the excitement, all these emotions that, and, and he's been on high alert for a long time. And now his body is crashing and he's feeling that crash. And the first thing God does is to take care of his physical body. And I love that. I do too. Having received the nourishment that he needed then, he travels to Mount Horeb. This might be a familiar place uh, to some of us. Uh, Recently we did a series in Exodus. Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai in scripture, is called the Mountain of God. And it's a place where God, his people recently freed from slavery in Egypt, made the journey to this mountain, to Mount Horeb. And at this mountain, God met them. He met with Moses. He gave them the law. He reiterated covenant relationship with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the place where a people after 400 years of slavery sat at the foot of this mountain and realized their God was the God and and a God inviting them into loving relationship and covenant. And so it's significant here in this text that Elijah, now the last prophet, uh, seemingly all of Israel has forgotten about God. He finds himself alone and not knowing what to do, travels back a 40-day journey to this mountain. 
to the place where Israel had first met with God and he had said, you will be my people and establish covenant with them. This man, one of the last few among the Israelite people to still be following God, finds himself at the foot of Mount Horeb. And that makes me stop and think about my life and my patterns. And and I want to ask us all this question. When we are crashing, when we hit the wall, what are, what do we do? Like, do we run like Elijah towards God or do we run towards other things? Do we, do we try to distract ourselves or, or, or run towards things that make false promises that they will take care of us? When we feel like the sky is falling, <laughs> when we, when we just hit that wall, what are our, what do we do? And, and I think this is a really important question to ask. And it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to answer that question. For me, the, the easiest way to really get a clear grasp on what my tendencies are is to think about my past. So like, what are my past patterns? When I've been super tired, when I've crashed, what have I done? And have those things moved me towards God? Or have those things distracted me and moved me away from God? What are the rhythms? And then I get to, out of that place, out of that self-awareness, I get to ask, okay, so it's going to happen again. <laughs> what are what are the rhythms? What are the patterns? What are the things that I want to think about now that I can commit to? Here's what I'm going to do when I crash. Here's what I'm going to do when I'm exhausted and when I feel like everything's falling apart. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? I wonder when you read this, when we read this, what's God's tone of voice? As he asks that question, is it a rebuke? Is it a criticism? Is it disappointment? Like, how do you read that? What are you doing here, Elijah? And I wonder if his tone isn't one of invitation. I wonder if it's more like, tell me what you're doing here, Elijah. Tell, tell me about what's going on right now with you. Talk to me. I was drawn to something remarkable in God's question here this week. Uh, What are you doing here? In the past, as I heard those words, I usually heard, what are you doing? Um, Almost like a rebuke, like you're saying, maybe that's that's part of the tone, but maybe that's not entirely it. What are you doing, Elijah? From the highest of heights, right? Having defeated the prophets of Baal, um, seeing God work faithfully, knowing that God is behind him, to now so broken, sitting by a bush wanting to die uh, at this mountain, uh, complaining, I don't know uh, what to do. I don't want to go on. But the latter part of the question is interesting. It's almost a second question. What are you doing here? What brought you to this place? Here you are at my mountain, where my presence has been revealed to your people and where I am now meeting with you. What are you doing here in this place. The place matters. It's significant in this story. But apparently Elijah heard the question a little bit more the first way. What are you doing? Because his answer is this. I've been zealous. I've done everything, God, that you asked me to do. Uh, Israel's rejected you, uh, even to the point of killing your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and they're after me as well. 
Story continues in verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. This is absolutely one of my favorite texts in scripture. Uh, We see God's power in the earthquake. We see God's power in the fire. But it says that's not how God was showing up to Elijah in this moment. Instead, God came in the form of a gentle whisper. As I read this text, I I picture um, a a mother hugging a crying child and whispering hope into their ear. That's just the image that comes to mind. Elijah, in the most broken place he can be, God appears to him. And it's not in the fire, and it's not in the earthquake, it's not in the miraculous and powerful and amazing things, although God does appear in those ways, but in the state of brokenness, God comes to him in a gentle whisper. And God says, come and stand in my presence. The invitation is to be in my presence and to be cared for by God. And we see similar um, invitations throughout Scripture. Um, King David in Psalm 62 verse 1 wrote, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. That being in the presence of God, my soul finds rest. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5 wrote, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you hear the the invitation, the repeated theme there that it is in the presence of God that we find rest and that we are cared for? And as we as we look at this invitation to be in the presence of God, I am so reminded that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God lives within us, that God is present to us all the time. And our invitation is to be present to the presence of God within us. I'm reminded in this text, the character of God as as seen throughout scripture. There are times when God acts in miracles and power. We saw it in Elijah's story just recently, Um, but a gentle, humble whisper. Um, And I think of the culmination of God's work in the story of Israel and, in fact, in the world. As Jesus is born into this world, it's a humble existence. It's not, it's not beautiful and miraculous, born into the house of wealth or fame or any of these sorts of things. But God chooses to manifest himself in this world in gentleness, in humility. We've seen gentleness and humility in the life and in the ministry of Jesus as he speaks hope into the broken and the hurting people of a nation. He says, there is hope in the kingdom of God and the kingdom is yours. 
I'm reminded of, of the character of God in our text today. His gentleness is humility, a gentle whisper in our lives. And we are invited to approach God also in humility and with our whole self, with mm-hmm. our hurt and vulnerable and honest and raw before God, to bring it all before God, knowing that as we do, the loving God that he is, he will, will um, engage us with gentleness and pour out his love on us. Elijah has now experienced the gentle whisper of God. He saw the earthquake and he saw the fire and then he experienced God's gentle whisper. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? The exact same question. Elijah just experienced now the gentle whisper of God. And what's amazing is his answer is exactly the same. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Isn't that interesting? God God asks the same question. He receives the same answer. But God continues to ask that question. God, in, in my mind here, what's happening is God is creating space. God is making space for Elijah to share his experience, space for Elijah to be seen and to be heard. Here is where I'm at, God, and God is listening to that. I love the fact that God doesn't correct Elijah in this moment or rebuke him or defend, you know, this is why I'm doing this this way, or this is why this had to happen. He simply invites Elijah to speak in his presence, and he listens. And isn't isn't a big part of being loved to be heard and to be seen? And that's what God's doing for Elijah here. He's hearing him, and he's seeing him. In a fairy tale, the story would have gone very differently, right? That gentle whisper would have healed him, and he would have risen up to new life and new hope. The clothes would have changed colors. Oh, absolutely. All these things would have happened. That's not the way it happened in the text. And I kind of find it comforting to know that there's a place for brokenness and a God who cares even when we experience it. Uh, that, that even the presence of God, when it doesn't immediately change my demeanor, I can know that God is still near. His whisper, his comforting, uh, his, his, his presence can still be near in my life. The presence of God did not immediately change Elijah's demeanor, but God is with him in spite of it. We'll finish off this portion of the story, starting in, in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. (laughs) Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meolah to succeed you as as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 
I'm not going to go into all that. There's a lot we can do with that text and talk about what comes with the kings and the way God will refine Israel through what happens next in that text. Instead, I want to just look at uh, two brief points in there as we conclude today. Uh, first, God says, go back the way you came. So Elijah's now going to walk for 40 days, right? Back to where he was. And I wonder what's happening in Elijah in those next 40 days. The presence of God, that gentle whisper, didn't immediately change his demeanor or experience in that moment. And yet now he has 40 days to walk and reflect. Have you ever found that sometimes it's in the steady pace of walking, it's at that three mile an hour pace in life that we really start to realize God's presence in new ways, that we really start to realize what God has been doing and is doing and leading us towards in our lives for 40 days. Now, as he heads back, he has opportunity to reflect upon the God that met him at Mount Horeb. The God who whispered gently to him in his brokenness. And God speaks of next steps, changes that will come in Israel. And finally, he says to Elijah, and by the way, you're not alone. Isn't it interesting how in our weakness and our brokenness, in times of rejection or times of hurt in our lives, it feels as though we're the only ones. Right, we feel so lost and left, and we can't uh, really fault Elijah for thinking in those ways because, because truly, I, I mean, there had been a genocide against the prophets of Israel in this time. However, God lets him know; He lets him in on that little secret. I have been reserving for myself, people. Seven thousand have not knelt, bowed down to Baal. God has a plan for Elijah. God has a plan for Israel. And Elijah now has 40 days to head back to a very dangerous place, and yet the place that God intends him to be for his own purposes, for God's own purposes, he has 40 days to walk back, reflect on God's presence, God having met him, and to reflect on the fact that God is still at work amongst us. And what an amazing God we serve who works at the nation level, you know, with Israel, trying to bring Israel back to himself and also at the same time sees individuals and, and is present in the lives of, uh, of Elijah and so many others in today in our lives. You know, in this story is, I think, big picture. I see Elijah um, doing some amazing things through God. God really doing amazing things through Elijah is, is how that works. And, um, and then just crashing. And when Elijah crashes, he chooses to run towards God, to move towards God instead of away. And God cares for Elijah with such tender gentleness and then sends him off to continue working. And so there's a whole lot of application there for, for us today in our walk. How will we, how will we respond to those moments? And let's start with directionality. Where are you headed in life? Today's a good time. This week is a good time to reflect on direction. Because I don't care how far away we might be, how, how distant we might feel, how hard things might be. It might be a 40-day journey to where we need to be next, right? It might be a 40-year journey. <laughs> but the question I want to ask today is what direction are we headed? Elijah, in his brokenness, took the long journey towards a place where he would meet God. And fortunately, we can be assured God is not far from us. He will meet us where we, were, where we, where we are at, wherever we're at. But the question is, what direction are we headed? 
Are we intentionally heading towards the presence of God, or are we choosing other things in life? And secondly, I'd challenge us to ask this question. Um, Are we taking time to sit still and experience God's presence, allowing it to transform us? It didn't immediately do it for Elijah in our lives, but it has the potential to, and it will. It will transform us in time. So are we taking time to experience the presence of God? Uh, Elijah, here in this cleft of a rock, uh, he finds himself in the presence of God. And I wonder what that cleft in the rock looks like for you in the week to come. Maybe there's a place or a time that you want to set aside to say, God, I just want to sit in your presence. And it might be a time of prayer or it might just be a time of silence in the presence of God. I'll bet you a good share of us in here uh, have never been in the prayer room that we have right back here. Um, And I want you to know uh, that could be a little cleft in the rock for you before or after a service. If you want to come during the week, let us know and please come. But find a place and a time in life where we can experience the presence of God. As you as you speak there, I'm reminded of the song that we just sang, I'm not in a hurry, that, that I will I will be in your presence and I'm not in a hurry. Whatever whatever you have for me, I will listen and receive that. So I want to invite us as we as we begin to conclude to choose God, to choose to be in the presence of God through communion today. So if Sally, you want to come back up. Um Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate, loved humanity, loved us so much that he gave his physical body as a sacrifice on the cross. Jesus, God in human flesh, was the perfect human who kept the covenant with God. And offers humanity grace and healing and reconciliation and, and new life through his life and death and resurrection. So communion is a practice started by Jesus to, re, to remind us. These very physical little elements to remind us of what Jesus has done, his sacrifice, and also how it changes us. How his life and death and resurrection changes us and offers us new life. As I was thinking about Elijah and God caring for his body, his physical body, I was thinking about the, the cracker, the bread that represents the physical body of Jesus that he willingly sacrificed. The juice represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. There is new life, friends. New life found in Jesus, and this is one way that we are able to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done and what that means for us who follow him. So in this uh, next few moments, uh, Sally and Micah will lead us in a song, and during that time, you're invited to stand, and if you'd like to take communion, go ahead and come. There's a table in the front and tables in the middle, and go ahead and take that cracker and take that juice, and you're welcome to eat that cracker and drink that juice at any point during the song with the people around you here in this room in this community um, during this song go ahead and take communion and then we'll close out together invite you to pray with me dear god we thank you we thank you for how you see humanity and how you love humanity 
Lord, we thank you for the, your character that we see in the story of Elijah. Lord, we thank you for the life of Jesus. The demonstration of what it looks like to be in relationship with you and to keep covenant, keep, keep on the right track with you, to love others and to serve others. We thank you for Jesus' death, as gruesome as it was, what it, what it represents, the atonement of sin, the forgiveness of sin, that you took that on yourself. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. And as we, as we thank you and remember your death, we also recognize that you were raised to life. That in Jesus, through his resurrection, we have new life. And so we, we say yes, we receive. We're so thankful for this gift and we receive your forgiveness. We receive your grace. We receive your mercy, Lord. And we ask that as we remember you in communion, and as we walk out of here, you would help us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that he is always here, always with us. And we get to walk in the presence of God. So friends, have a wonderful week and walk with God. We'll see you next week.